Good morning. I'm David Hartman. I'm a missionary from here, Woodridge. My wife and I are preparing to serve as church planters among the Yanomami of Brazil. It is an honor and a great responsibility to stand here and preach the word. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, our text this morning is verses 17 to 31. Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first this is the word of the lord god i come before you like a child needy i need you i need to receive from you what only you can give God, I pray that this morning you would use me and my weakness to preach your word to your people so that Christians would see your glorious provision for their need and worship you more holy so that the non-Christian would be lovingly confronted with their great need for a Savior. God, may we make much of Jesus this morning 
May he be lifted up in our hearts and minds and worshiped. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin with the story of a man named Geheru. Geheru is a Yamamami man. I grew up among the Yamamami of Brazil in a village called the Novo Demini. Geheru was not from Novo Demini, but he had showed up at our village one day with fear in his face, for he had been confronted with the truth of the gospel. This is his story. Two months ago, I was very sick. The witch doctors couldn't heal me. I got more and more sick, and eventually I died. I could hear the wailing of my people, but I saw now that I was on a wide path. We Yamamami don't have paths like this. We have narrow, windy paths. This is something I've never seen. The wailing of my people over my death had faded. I looked down at the path I was on, and there were footprints. I recognized them. They were Yamamami footprints. So I figured that I was okay. So I continued down this path, and I decided I would look for Bola Bahama. Bola Bahama is our Yamamami heaven, what we believe is heaven. I knew my dad would be there. So, and I was so excited to see him. I continued on, but I didn't find Bola Bahama. I saw up ahead on this path that there was a turn. And when I came to the turn in the path, I looked ahead and saw a huge fire. I was afraid. I didn't want to go to the fire. The path led straight to it. I tried to turn, and I couldn't. I looked and saw that the Yamamami footprints were still on this path. I was being forced towards this huge fire. I tried to turn again and again and I couldn't. When I was coming to the edge of this huge area filled with fire, I was at the brink ready to fall in. A man appeared out of nowhere and motioning to me, he said, you go back. I turned, and when I turned to go back, I moved in my casket. My people had tied me in my casket, preparing me after my death. When they saw me move, they cut me out, and some ladies took me to my hammock, where I began to heal and to recover. After recovering, I went to the witch doctor's and I told them where I had gone. I told them what I had seen, but the witch doctor said, you are lying. I said, no, I'm not lying. I saw the big fire, the Yamamami footprints were going straight into it. Let's minimize the stories tab and I'll bring it back up and finish it later. Back in Mark chapter 10, Jesus has just blessed the children. Remember those children that his disciples tried to keep from Jesus? 
Jesus rebuked his disciples. He received the children to himself, and he blessed them. Jesus took this opportunity to teach his disciples that one must come as a child in order to inherit eternal life. If they were to come into the kingdom of God, they had to come as a child. We too must come as children, hopeless and helpless to save ourselves, totally dependent on Jesus, receiving freely the salvation only He has provided. Jesus is now continuing on His journey with His disciples to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, where He will be arrested, He will be beaten, He will be crucified, and after three days raised from the dead. Verse 17, And as He was setting out on His journey, a man ran up and knelt before Him and asked Him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? First of all, who is this man? From the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know that this man is young, he is rich, and he is a ruler. So that's how this text gets its popular name, the rich young ruler. But for Mark's purposes, it is enough to know that he is a man who had great possessions. We aren't told his name. I'm not certain how much this man had personally seen of Jesus, seen his miracles, or heard his teaching. But word about Jesus traveled quickly. Even in an age without texting Twitter and Facebook, certainly there is no doubt he has heard of the great miracles Jesus has done. And he has probably heard of Jesus' teaching from the scriptures as one with authority, unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus has caught this man's attention and earned his respect. This is clear by the fact that this wealthy man, this ruler, who must have had many servants, he personally runs to meet Jesus as Jesus is leaving on his journey. He runs up to Jesus and kneeling before him greets him, good teacher, and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We see another thing about this man. He's religious. He's clearly thought about life after death, in the age to come. And he really wants Jesus' opinion on what he must do to inherit eternal life. I think he's hoping that Jesus will confirm what he already believes and what he is doing in order to inherit eternal life. I'm sure the first words coming out of Jesus' mouth were not what he expected. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is interesting. Jesus ignores the man's question temporarily. And First, it seems he's nitpicking this man's greeting. Good teacher. Jesus, without question, is good because he is God and God is good. So here Jesus is in no way denying his goodness or his divinity. Scripture is clear about both. I think Jesus is saying to this man, hold on, check 
your definition of good. Our definition of good is important. Jesus wasn't nitpicking. The way we define good will lead us to either the wrong or the right answer to this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is so relevant to us today. And this is why. It's foundational to God's plan of salvation. This truth. God alone is good. That's where we have to start. If we intend to get anything else right, God alone is good. All people are sinners. All people are sinners. Jesus is identifying this man's wrong thinking. You see, the man wasn't addressing Jesus as God and therefore good. No, he was speaking to Jesus as a good man like he viewed himself. He thought Jesus was another man like himself who kept the requirements of the law to earn God's favor, doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. But Jesus is not okay with a relative view of goodness. And we must not be either. And Jesus isn't going to leave this man believing that he is good. Continuing, we see Jesus' response to the man's actual question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Okay. We need to understand something here. This man isn't mad. He's not crazy when he says he has kept these laws. In Jesus' time, it was actually believed that the requirements of the law could be kept. People dedicated their lives to following the law that God had given them through Moses. And they did this in order to have God's favor. Paul, for example, said that as to the righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Now, a popular belief doesn't make it truth, right? We know this. And in this case, it is a lie. This man is so spiritually blind that he is taking the key to discovering the sinfulness of his own heart, turning it around and thinking that it is the key to the gates of eternal life. He looks into the law, the very thing given to reveal sin, and he thinks he has favor with God. This man is believing the lie that people can be good. He's betting on his own merits, hanging his very life on his own ability to be good. He doesn't even recognize the Messiah, the promised one, standing right in front of him, who, by the way, is headed to Jerusalem to die because there is absolutely no way this rich man or anybody else can possibly save himself from the mess that is called sin that he is in because of mankind's rebellion against God. 
And this man doesn't even think he needs Jesus. If we were there with Jesus, how would we have counseled Jesus in responding to this man? Would we have pulled out our memory verses from Awana, ready to fly and sting this guy? Maybe you would have remembered the verse references. That's the hardest part for me. Remember Jesus, Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, when you said, if a man looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's guilty of adultery. Or if a man has, anger, has been angry with his brother, he's guilty of murder. Jesus, used those. Show, show him that he's wrong. Prove to him that he's wrong. Church, please hear this. We Christians are often guilty of communicating a holier-than-thou message. Intentionally or unintentionally, we send messages like, you are dirty and not worth my time. You don't live up to my standards. We can't associate. I don't accept you. Brothers and sisters, let's check our hearts in our interactions with sinners. Let's slow down. Pray asking God for wisdom. Listen to the person we're talking with. Take the time to look inside and first judge ourselves according to God's word. I'm speaking to all of us Christians. And I'm speaking specifically to the pride and self-exalting tendency within myself. Jesus sees this man's self-confidence, self-righteousness, and pride. And he is going to confront him with the lie he believes. But he will do so by first getting to the man's heart. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 21, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Jesus doesn't attack this man for saying he has kept the commandments from his childhood. Jesus didn't cut him off to let him know who it is he's talking to. Here we have some insight into telling the truth in love. Jesus listened, even when the man was wrong. He listened. He worked with the man in his wrong thinking, though he never affirmed what was false. Jesus loved him, and so he clearly revealed to this man the lie he was living. I believe Jesus communicated love to this man. He loved him enough to tell him that he was wrong and to tell him the truth. The truth is communicated in a way that shows love. It is motivated by love. Church, may the truth of the gospel we speak be motivated by love for the sinner. We must communicate the gospel in its entirety. Maybe not all at once, but we cannot take from the gospel. We must proclaim that people are hopeless and helplessly lost sinners. 
People are deserving of God's holy judgment. But God has made a loving and gracious provision for our great need. Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection. Are we proclaiming the gospel? And are we motivated by love and doing it? Are people offended because of us? Or because of the truth of the gospel? Do they reject Jesus because of Jesus? Or because of us, Christians? May we not be the cause of sinners walking away from Jesus. Jesus loves him. That's a big deal. I don't believe this was recorded to encourage people who are trying to earn eternal life by keeping the law or any other moral standard. Jesus isn't impressed by man's efforts, man's humility, man's best. Scripture's so clear that we fall short of God's righteous demands. Seeing this man's self-righteousness, Jesus loves him. Knowing that the man will walk away from him, Jesus loves him. And what's going on here? Who is this man to Jesus? This man is Jesus' unique design. Jesus' excellent creation. Jesus knit him together in his mother's womb. Jesus gives him his every breath and heartbeat. Certainly the reason Jesus loved him and told him the truth is that Jesus is jealous for this sinner's soul. This man is starving and wasting away on a diet of earthly, fading pleasures, while the one who can satisfy his soul's hunger and thirst stands before him saying, follow me. I am better than everything this world can offer. Church, do we love sinners like Jesus does? It is necessary and good for us to check our hearts, to let God's word and spirit search us. And it's scary because the light reveals darkness, my sin. And it can hurt because my pride, my selfishness, my rights must be put to death. They must be cut off. They must be uprooted. It may be scary and painful, but it is good, for it is necessary in order to love as Jesus loves. We must ask ourselves and God some questions. Are we afraid to love because it might bring the unpopular people around our homes? Will our families approve? Will our friends accept us and this man or that woman who doesn't dress like us, doesn't look like us, doesn't smell like us, eat like us, think like us? This is worship of men and this is worship of self. And let's repent of this thinking if, if we hold it. Are some worthy of our love, but not others? Are some deserving, but not others? The truth is 
that we are all undeserving of God's love. And yet he has loved us. And we have received his love. So we dare not count someone else unworthy, for we ourselves are unworthy. When we choose not to love, we also choose to withhold God's love. Let's think of the people we have grown weary or tired of loving or have chosen to never love. Do their lives stand in opposition to the gospel? Jesus loves them. Are they self-righteous? Jesus loves them. Are they consumed by the riches and dreams of this world? Jesus loves them. Might they reject us, our love, and the truth? Jesus loves them. Church, motivated by love, let's confront the sinner with his sin and his Savior. What was the rich man's response to Jesus' call to follow him instead of his wealth? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man walked away from Jesus. He was not ready to deal with his idolatry, the worship of his possessions. Even as he stood unknowingly before Jesus, who is better than everything this world can offer, He chose to hold on to his earthly wealth, his hard-earned mini-kingdom. How did Geheru respond to the gospel? Remember Geheru, the Yamamami man who was struck with the terrifying reality of hell. He needs the rest of the gospel He needs the good news. Was there any hope for him or his people? Geheru had never met a foreigner, a missionary before, but he had heard of them in another village. He, along with three other men, traveled five days through the jungles and came to the Novodemini, where they met my dad and coworker. And over a period of time, Geheru was taught the truth according to God's word and unlike the rich man. He professed faith in Christ as his Savior. He came as a child, bringing no goodness of his own, but he came needy and ready to receive Jesus. Now, after the man walked away from Jesus, Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Why did Jesus repeat himself? I think he's saying, slow down, Don't miss this. This is important. Let's 
Let's sit a moment on this one. This one's worth our time. Jesus wants us to understand the danger of riches. Riches can keep us from coming to Jesus as a child. And we Americans live in a nation that enjoys more riches than any other in this world. So what is unique about riches or wealth or possessions? Why this special attention? Among the Jews, it was believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and a result of having earned God's favor by keeping his commands. In addition to this dangerous assumption are the following dangers. Wealth has a tendency to create feelings of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and self-confidence. I am really something. I don't need anyone else. I will do this. Wealth promises that I will have what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. Wealth says I can have the friends I've always wanted. I can do the things I've only dreamed about doing. I can be who I want to be. And all of this leaves little room for coming to Jesus like a child. Helpless and needy, ready to receive from him what only he can give. That said, Jesus never condemns riches or wealth. He actually told the rich man that he would have treasure in heaven. We, we know that God has enabled and is enabling many people to love him and worship him and serve him with their wealth. Rather than wealth, it is the love and worship of money that is condemned. Beware of the love of riches, non-Christian. It blinds the eyes to one's desperate need for Jesus. Beware of the love of riches, Christian. It has the power to remove our gaze from Jesus causing us to wander from the truth and leading us into much pain. Jesus then used an illustration to strike his disciples and us with the reality of how difficult it is for a man to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus often used things that his audience were very familiar with, like a camel and a needle, to clarify truths that are hard, difficult to grasp. So he said, verse 25, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Some have suggested, though I read it wasn't until the 19th century, that Jerusalem had a small gate called the eye of the needle. And, Jesus, and that Jesus was talking about this, this specific gate and saying how camels had to get down on their knees in order to crawl through it. The difficulty being his point there. This, though, is an iffy interpretation. It would be safer for us to read Jesus' words as referring to a real camel, like the biggest animal in their part of the world, with the humps and everything, as walking through the eye of a physical needle 
tiny little needle hole. Ridiculous image. Funny mental picture. <clears throat> Not going to happen. But it makes his point clear. And what were his disciples' response? They were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? If it's impossible for a rich man who they believed even had God's favor to be saved, then what hope did they have? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And apart from God, not one of us would be saved. We, like the rich man, would remain forever lost living out our lives in darkness. But God, I love those two words together, God can save. And praise God, he is passionate about saving people, about redeeming a people for his name. He doesn't want any to perish. And he has done everything to make the salvation of people possible. Jesus humbled himself took our sin and suffered the weight of God's wrath, his holy judgment in our place. At this point, Peter is thinking how unlike the rich man, he and the disciples had left everything and followed Jesus. Peter began to say to him, verse 28, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Here Jesus affirms Peter and teaches his disciples what it costs to follow Jesus. In this life, following Jesus is both, is both costly and rewarding. The reward in this life is first and foremost Jesus Christ himself. He has promised to never leave us, Christian. He sent his spirit to make his home within us to be our comfort, our wisdom, our power. He has created a body of believers. In God's family, we enjoy a special relationship in Jesus Christ. We enjoy loving and being loved, forgiving and being forgiven, serving and being served, comforting and being comforted. It is beautiful and it glorifies God. But we don't escape the cost of following Jesus. Anna and I are on a journey preparing to serve as church planters among the Yanomami. But in doing so, Anna in particular faces many challenges. She will be living among a people who don't speak the same language they sleep differently, they dress differently, they use the bathroom differently, they eat things she has never eaten before. 
God has called Anna to face a lot of unknowns and to leave a lot of what she has always known. Specifically, she's moving away from her sisters who hold such a special place in her life. She's leaving her parents, her grandparents, her nieces and nephews. But every time we move to a different place, Anna feels the pain of having her roots yanked out of growing friendships only to be replanted in unknown relationships. But God, God has repeatedly asked Anna these questions. Am I worth it? Am I worthy? And do you trust me? And he, he has convinced Anna that yes, he is worth it. He is worthy of losing everything. For in losing everything, Anna gains more of Jesus. He is not only worthy, but he is better and more satisfying than anything and everything we could possibly give up. Church, Jesus is better than everything this world can offer. Christians, Jesus isn't calling everyone to move to Senegal, Brazil, or Albania, but maybe some of you. But he has a plan and a purpose for each and every one of us. And it will surely require us to die to ourselves and to live for Jesus. See, his plan for us may not please our families, and it may turn our friends away from us. It may cause people to persecute us. John Piper said the following in reference to missionaries, but really, are we not all called to make disciples? And therefore, we are all missionaries. So let's hear this word from John Piper. Surely, what Jesus means is that he himself makes up for every loss. If you give up a mother's nearby affection and concern, you get back 100 times the affection and concern from the ever-present Christ. If you give up the warm comradeship of a brother, you get back 100 times the warmth and camaraderie from Christ. If you give up the sense of at-homeness you had in your house, you get back 100 times the comfort and security of knowing that our Lord owns every house and land and stream and tree on earth. Isn't what Jesus is saying to prospective missionaries, to all of us, just this? I promise to work for you and be for you so much that you will not be able to speak of having sacrificed anything. That's the way Hudson Taylor took it because at the end of his 50 years of missionary labor in China, he said, I never made a sacrifice. In addition to the people and the things given up in order to follow Jesus, we are promised persecution. The gospel we live and proclaim is not always received well. Jesus told his disciples in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And in John chapter 3, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. 
First, Satan, the god of this age, he's opposed to God, to God's purposes, and to God's people. From political leaders to religious leaders, as well as anyone else who opposes Jesus, anyone who opposes Jesus will oppose us. Many hate us. Many lie about us. Some may seek to harm us, but they oppose the light of the gospel. Some of us may suffer and even die for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. We have many brothers and sisters in Christ who are being persecuted and killed for following Jesus. The question is, is following Jesus worth this sacrifice? Jesus told his disciples, and in the age to come, eternal life. Now it will cost. Then it is all reward. Eternal life. Life with God. Life in God. Forever worshiping and enjoying Him. Church, Jesus is better than everything this world can offer. Let's chase after Jesus and make Him our passion. And when Jesus is our greatest treasure, we will want to share this treasure with everyone. We will proclaim Jesus in love to all. And we will do so at the risk of rejection, ridicule, and persecution. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through Jesus. Thank you that all things are possible with you. You can save sinners. You have made a way through Jesus to save us, to redeem for yourself a people, to worship you and to enjoy you. God, I pray that we would love the lost enough to confront them with their sin and their Savior. You are good. Thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.